electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber. Jim Cramer has the morning off. Dow futures do imply a fifth day down would be the longest losing streak in almost a year as we watch GameStop and company, a Fed decision this afternoon, Q4 earnings from corporate giants. This hour alone, the CEOs of Boeing, AMD and Starbucks are going to join us. But, David, uh, another morning where we're really going to have to start with GME. Yeah, we are. You heard Leslie talking about it. Listen, don't want to lose sight of the broader market, of course, as you just said, Carl, given things are looking uh, lower uh, this morning. Um, but this has become sort of an overarching story. And, and frankly, those of us who've been doing this for a very long time, myself included, I know if Jim were here, he would say the same because we've been talking Never seen anything quite like it, uh, not to mention many of the uh, people I've been speaking to late into the night last night because people are both fascinated by this and horrified by it. But uh, um, it's unlike anything we've ever really seen. You know, I've, I've, I've made reminiscences to the period of the late 90s where people would get on the Yahoo chat boards. But that was obviously things moved a lot slower then in terms of the ability of technology to actually execute trades and the like. But also there they were comparing ideas about what to go long. And yes, many of the names were completely speculative. And in fact, many of those companies are no longer with us, Carl. But in this case, you have uh, concerted or otherwise these efforts of people to go in particular after companies that have very large short positions. And so you're seeing some very strange things in the market. It's not just GameStop, of course, guys. Look at some of the others. In fact, AMC is perhaps even more insane in many ways. This is a company that has been on the edge of bankruptcy so many times, as you well know, Carl, given the difficulties it's faced in its core business. And by the way, I think it is interesting. People also are confusing AMC Networks, totally different company with AMC, so they've sent that <laughs> yes. stock up as well. But, you know, when you look at uh, uh, the basket of longs to shorts, the spread between the two is widened to the likes of which nobody's ever seen, Carl. Um, and, uh, you know, let's get to some of the news this morning, I guess, to just start off. GameStop doesn't look like there are going to be too many people covering shorts anymore. I mean, Gabe Plotkin at Melvin. By the way, we use the term, everybody wants to think that they're a superstar hedge fund manager. And they all get paid like that, as I've said many times, and there are hardly any. But he perhaps has the right to actually call himself that. He has been an extraordinarily good allocator of capital. However, here he seems to have gotten caught up in something where he was just unable to mitigate and or manage his risk appropriately. And certainly that is an important component as well of being a good hedge fund manager. So, you know, fundamentally, GameStop, who knows what that company is worth. I can guarantee you it's not worth 247 Probably not worth 200 or 100. Uh, we've had plenty of analysts come on and explain to us the challenges that business has, and they are myriad. That said, Mr. Plotkin perhaps did not do a particularly good job in terms of managing the flows and the risk there, and he has suffered as a result, getting that rescue financing from Citadel uh, and SAC. Will it be enough? Well, anyway, the news is he's not going to have to cover anymore. So who is, Carl, is the question there. How many other people are still short? 
or does it matter anymore? By the way, I'm hearing of a number of other hedge funds. I don't have the names that are also in a similar position because, again, this is widespread. We keep watching showing GameStop. Guys, let's show some of the other names here as well. Uh, if you were short AMC, if you were short Bed Bath & Beyond, if you were short, I mean, just go on through the names that we've seen. They are actively coming after you, coordinating perhaps in some way on the Reddit chat room, Wall Street bets, or maybe not. I mean, Carl, you know, nobody's going to the movies. I mean, if you're Adam Aaron right now, you're selling all the stock you possibly can, right? Uh, that would be that was our question to one of the now former uh, GameStop analysts yesterday, David. You know, to what degree can the companies take advantage of this incredible dislocation? I mean, to your point, we are seeing attempts at least to publish fundamental analysis. Today, it's B of A uh, reiterating GME with an underperform price target 10. But obviously, that's like spitting in the wind right now. Yeah, it, it, it means nothing here because, again, these efforts are being undertaken. They are successful and they are going after these companies that have very large short positions and send them to astronomical valuations that have absolutely nothing to do with the underlying fundamentals uh, of the companies. Uh, and that is the case certainly with AMC, and it's the case with any number of others that we're going to show you throughout the morning. As I said, there are a number of other hedge funds that are going to have to get what we call rescue financing, similar to what you saw in the case of Melvin when, they came, when he came to uh, uh, SAC and Citadel because they're just simply not in a position. Prime brokerages, I'm, you know, I'm going to start checking with them. There's a look. Cost, Express. I mean, you know, again, um, it's unique. And the question then becomes, Carl, are or is there a place for the regulators here to get involved in some way? Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with people uh, conversing in a chat room and, and, and exchanging ideas. In fact, there are plenty of dinners involving 10 hedge fund managers who ma manage a collective $100 billion getting together and exchanging their ideas. But to the extent that this is a concerted effort, and by the way, the cheerleading from Chamath Palhapatia, who's going to be on later this morning uh, on, uh, on with Scott Wapner, uh, and even Elon Musk to a certain extent through their tweets, you know, they play to this audience, right? Chamath has benefited from the interest of this audience in terms of sending his many SPACs higher especially when he has a deal that's done. Musk, we know what's happened with Tesla. I just, there is an element to this again. I'll just come back to it. I know we got to get to Boeing. Um, that is unique, unlike anything I've ever seen. And by the way, some of the money being spent here on some of these call positions is enormous. It does make you wonder whether it's all just retail. And the fact that somebody could list 200 calls on, on, uh, on GameStop last night and actually somebody would buy them is sort of shocking. So, there's so much here, and we will continue to watch it closely, Carl. Yeah, uh, that's why uh, Adina Friedman's comments were, were key this morning, uh, David, on Squawk, hearing from Massachusetts regulators. And we'll try to make sure that it doesn't steal all the oxygen in the room, not just from the Fed uh, decision this afternoon, but from corporate earnings. On that topic, our Phil LeBode this morning has the CEO of Boeing. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl. Let's bring in Dave Calhoun, CEO of Boeing, uh, which just reported its fourth quarter uh, results this morning, a much wider than expected loss. Dave, I think people are going to look at this, a loss of 15.25 a share. The expectation was for a loss of a buck 80 a share. I know you've got a slew of charges in there, more than $8 billion in charges, but what happened in the fourth quarter? And, and, and how do you regain the narrative uh, to investors that you do have vision in terms of where this company will be headed? Well, Phil, first, uh, Good to be with you, and uh, um, I'm sure glad uh, 2020 is in the rearview mirror. Uh, but yeah, we did have to make some adjustments, uh, largely uh, accounting adjustments, uh, 
uh, when I think about entering this year and those, and those adjustments, I, I sort of look at it uh, optimistically, not pessimistically. Why? Well, the one big charge was for the 777X program, uh, as you know. What's happened with the 777X program? We, we had to, uh, based on everything we learned in the max recertification effort, um, the processes, procedures that the global regulators are now going to use uh, you know, throughout the world, um, we put more time into the uh, certification schedule for the 777X. Um, and we're determined to meet every compliance requirement from every regulator in the world uh, on day one which meant that we had to incorporate a few design changes, et cetera. Um, uh, so it's going to be a little more costly. It's going to take a little longer, ultimately, to uh, certify. And then, uh, with respect to how you account for these programs, the uh, adjustments that we've had to make around demand uh, due to COVID are largely in these early years of production, which speaks to a large portion of the accounting lot that we use to value the program, which means that this this kind of adjustment ultimately was required. The good news for that is that we are determined to continue to invest in the 777X. We love the airplane. And ultimately, when it moves to satisfy a market of roughly 1,500 airplanes out there over the next 20 years, um, we think it's going to be one of the real money makers for our, for our company. So uh, like our predecessors, uh, we intend to invest in, uh, and ultimately uh, perform with this great wide-body aircraft. So that was a big part of it. Another one was a tax uh, 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 asset revaluation um, that hit us. And so those are, I think, the uh, unexpected numbers that, um, you know, again, uh, they don't cloud my view of the future and or the Boeing company's view of the future. You are taking a $6.5 billion charge on the 777X. You're putting off expectation for its entry into service from 2022 to late 2023. How confident are you that that wide body market, and we're talking about the international market, that it will be back come 2024, 2025, or are you now even pushing things out further in terms of your expectations for when the market starts to come back? No, we really haven't extended it uh, further, but the early years um, of, the, uh, of our production rate, uh, largely because of COVID-related demand reduction, those early years are definitely at lower rates, and we've announced and talked about those rates um, uh, broadly. So, and again, that is what sort of uh, uh, gets calculated in, inside this initial accounting quantity that we use for our program accounting, which is why that big number is there. But we will leave that 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 uh, accounting quantity with pretty significant cash margins, and then ultimately satisfy that that long-term demand. And yes, I am just as confident as I've ever been um, in that long-term demand and uh, the application of this wide-body airplane. And I think the competitive dynamics of this airplane uh, relative to what's out there give it another big advantage that prior wide-bodies wide have not had. We've usually had to compete one or two big four-engine airplanes against each other. Um, going forward, we'll have this one large twin engine, and it'll, it'll be differentiated in every way I can think of. Dave, let's switch gears and talk about the narrow body market, 737 MAX. Uh, EASA this morning uh, giving its certification or returning it to service in, in, in Europe saying, hey, look, if you are an airline in Europe, you're good to fly this again. How much do you expect that to potentially start to spur some of those European airlines to say, okay, what are we looking at in terms of future orders? Do we amend it? Do we add more order, orders for the MAX or are you, to a certain extent, in a holding pattern because of COVID-19? 
Well, we're never, yeah, I would never characterize this being a holding pattern, but the market is definitely in a holding pattern. Um, look, the, the, the EASA uh, lifting of, of the of grounding order is enormously important to us. United States, uh, Canada, now Europe, ANAC, uh, uh, South America. Uh, right now, we've got a large part of the, uh, you know, the global footprint now having lifted the order. Most importantly, the early indications of this airplane um, are everything we hoped they would be. Uh, we, we've now had 2,700 revenue service flights, 5,500 flight hours. Operating performance of the airplane has been fantastic. Um, all the efficiency gains, emissions gains that were anticipated have been there. And maybe the most important number and indicative of a conversation that's been going on for several years, the load factors on these airplanes are as good, as good as the load factors for the, for the narrow-body fleets in general. So um, nobody is reticent to want to fly on the MAX, and that's very important, as you know. To the balance sheet for a moment, uh, if I might. Uh, Phil mentioned, of course, some of the charges that you're taking. Uh, this quarter. Do you have sufficient liquidity to uh, face whatever may be coming at you, or at least what you expect uh, for the rest of this year? Yeah, David, I think we do. Um, so I've been, uh, first of all, it is our metric of choice between the beginning of COVID and uh, recovery, and we're nowhere near recovery yet. So that is the metric all of us are focused on to make sure that we have the liquidity we need to continue to invest in our future and uh, uh, and to uh, take these lower production rates in hand. Um, so far, so good. In fact, I, I would suggest we, we probably feel better than we have over the course of last year. Things are beginning to remedy. Uh, 737 MAX is now uh, being delivered. Um, we have uh, an, too big an inventory in the 8-7 world. That will begin to deliver over the course of the year, so cash flows improve. Um, and yes, we will be in the market, but it will mostly be with respect to maturities and refinancing as opposed to additional liquidity needs. So we feel pretty good, and we continue to underwrite very conservative cases. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the, how you view this year, you know, I know a number of the major airlines are looking at the middle of the third quarter or so of this year, perhaps for significant increases in traffic, or at least they're hoping. And of course, who knows, given the course of the virus and the vaccine administration. But what are you expecting when it comes to particularly the second half of 2021, Dave? Well, that that guess is uh, probably in line, in fact, is in line with my thinking. Um, I think all of us were hoping um, vaccine distribution might go a little little more smoothly, uh, penetration a little longer, and we'd be down the other side of the, uh, the epidemiology curves uh, at this moment, and then therefore be ready for uh, early summer traffic. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think the airlines are, are hedging their bets on that front, and I think they're right to do that. But I do think in the second half, when we get to midsummer, and we really do think that penetration of that vaccine is where it needs to be. I do think it's going to come back. I've said it all along. There will be robust demand when the time comes. There's a lot of pent-up demand, both in, both in personal and in business travel. So I think that's the way it's going to play out. And it'll be all, pretty much all these domestic routes here in the United States. Of course, China, which is a little ahead of all of us, uh, India. And then the regional market in Europe um, will be the next thing to sort of begin to break open. But they have the additional complication of, of border protocols that they're going to have to come up with a consistent response for. But I do, I do believe the recovery will be robust. But I, I also believe it's now sort of mid to latter summer as opposed to, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the beginning of the summer. Dave, it's Phil again. One final question for you. What about China? What's your sense in terms of when they might uh, unground 
the 737 MAX, and then broader, longer term, do you sense that perhaps this year Boeing lands a significant commercial airplane order from China? Because I think it's back to 2018 was the last time you had a, a significant order from that country. Yeah, Phil, it's, uh, it's, it's a great question. It's very important to our, our medium and long-term future. China as a market matters a lot to us. Um, yeah, we are confident that we are progressing with the CAAC on the recertification or the ungrounding of the MAX. Just like with our other regulators, they have their own approach and they, 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 they have requirements that the other regulators might not have. But we've been progressing and we've been progressing quite well. All the technical teams are lined up. We are uh, at, the, at the moment trying to schedule test flights. COVID has made that a little tougher than, uh, than, than, than you might think. But we will, I believe, get all of that done and the airplane will fly again. And then, yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that, um, you know, we get constructive with China. There's no question there are important uh, trade issues that have to be wrestled with around intellectual property and other things. But then there's also a mutual dependence on our countries around trade itself in, in some of those areas that aren't so sensitive. Um, and we think airplanes is actually one of those uh, areas. China has a need. We've been constructive with all the airlines. We've been listening. We've stayed with them throughout this whole process. So, yeah, I'm, I am optimistic that, uh, that, in fact, we can uh, uh, reconstruct and, uh, and do, do trade and get orders out of, out of the China market. We've been getting them, but, but they've been smaller. and They've been mostly focused on the freighter market. Um, and the passenger market is what, is what we need to open up. A lot to watch for 2021. Dave, thank you very much for joining us this morning on Squawk on the Street. Uh, guys, Carl, I'll send it back to you. Uh, watch shares of Boeing under pressure right now after reporting that wider than expected loss. Let's see how this uh, progresses throughout the day. Good stuff, Phil. We appreciate that. Our Phil LeBeau uh, with Dave Calhoun of Boeing. Speaking of being under pressure, a lot of big names uh, bearing the same today. AMD's down on the pre-market coming off of some all-time highs despite seeing quarterly revenue top $3 billion for the first time ever. And we'll check in with Lisa Sue on those results next after this quick break. Don't go away. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Record revenues and earnings that were above expectations. Not enough to keep shares of AMD in the green this morning ahead of the bell, although they have been in the green plenty of days previously. With us now on those results and a CNBC exclusive is the company's CEO, Lisa Su. Lisa, always great to have you. Um, you had a very strong quarter. You know, we're watching the stock perhaps go down a few percent. Let's start off on the date of the data center, which is obviously a very important part of your end market. Um, you know, you're talking about no digestion there, as sort of how the analysts put it, at least. The strong CPU demand that you saw seems to be continuing throughout this year. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, good morning, David. Great to uh, be with you guys again this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, you know, I think overall, uh, David, 2020 was really a, uh, a 
fantastic year, you know, sort of an inflection point for the company. Uh, you know, we did revenue over 9.7 billion, which is actually a record in our 51-year uh, uh, history. Uh, when you look across the market segments that we're in, uh, you know, data centers, PCs, and gaming, um, we've seen robust demand across um, all of those segments. And you know, to your specific question on data center, uh, we did see uh, the data center strengthen as uh, we went through the end of last year and going into 2000. Uh, we see very strong demand driven by, you know, some of the uh, the trends that, you know, we talk about all the time, the importance of the cloud um, and, you know, all of the build out there and just, you know, the strength of our product portfolio and our, and our focus on the data center. So, yeah, we're excited um, about uh, the prospects in the data center in 2021, as well as uh, the other markets uh, that we're in. You have a number of new products as well coming uh, this year, don't you, that are going to obviously be targeted towards that demand that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as, as we always talk, David, we're all about the products, and uh, these products have been in development for many years, uh, coming to market here in uh, 2021. Uh, it is the best product portfolio, um, you know, that we've had in the history of the company. Um, just at, you know, CES um, a few weeks ago, we launched um, our new mobile products. Uh, that are going into um, you know high-end notebooks for uh, gaming and commercial and uh, you know premium uh, consumer SKUs. Uh, we're very excited about an upcoming um, launch for us of our um, new data center processors. So this is our third generation of uh, data center processors that again take performance to the next level. And I think we all see that you know technology is just so important um, under this uh, under this backdrop. So uh, we're uh, very excited about the new products. Yeah, that backdrop, at least, is exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, there's a growing view that uh, tech spending, because of the pandemic, went into sort of what they're now calling, I guess, defensive mode last year, where you're investing in remote work and things like that. And that'll switch to more offensive spending on things like data analytics in the year ahead. Does that, does that make sense to you? How do you think the nature of tech spending, at least in your area, changes in, in 2021? I think that's a great point. I think one of the, um, you know, the things that's really uh, been, you know, sort of the backdrop of the pandemic has shown is that, you know, tech is so important. And so uh, no question in 2020, uh, you know, the work from home, school from home trends, you know, people actually had a different relationship and wanted more out of their technology. And so there was an upgrade cycle around that. Um, I think as we go into 2021, I think many of those trends continue. And, you know, really it's, it's about the modernization of the technology infrastructure. So I think people need um, the newest generation technology. I think, you know, our goals are to, uh, you know, help our customers and partners through that transition. And, you know, that's part of the reason uh, we had a, a very strong outlook for 2021. You know, our 2021 looks like um, our outlook will grow uh, 37%, which is, you know, again, off of a very strong 2020 is uh, because of those tech trends, as well as the strength um, in some of our new product launches. You know, Buffett always says, never talk about father on Mother's Day. But uh, I do want to ask you about the competition because without, I guess, naming particular names, it's clear that they're having to pivot to some degree in response to the strength that you've demonstrated. Do you feel like you also now have to move given some of the uh, areas of change that you're seeing on your biggest rivals? Well, you know, again, what I would say is, um, you know, in the semiconductor business, um, you really have to make your decision uh, three to five yeah. We're planning our roadmaps now, you know, for um, 2023 and beyond. So uh, it's all about execution and ensuring that we execute well. Uh, we always assume that it's going to be a very competitive environment, and I have um, always, uh, you know, believed that. 
Um, but we also believe that you know when you really think you know long term about um, you know, the uh, technology roadmaps, uh, you know really deep customer uh, relationships, and and thinking about where the market is going, uh, we can really uh, you know drive a tremendous amount of innovation and uh, change in the performance uh, market, and that's that's what we've been doing. Lisa, we uh, your uh, your computing graphics segment segment was up about eighteen percent year over year. That's obviously quite strong. But we all know last year featured people buying an awful lot of PCs for the work at home environment, for example. What are your expectations for that market for this year? I would assume demand may slow, and are you seeing some loss of market share because some analysts, at least, are pointing to your losses of some market share of the low to mid end range of those markets? Yeah, David, you know, um, the, the context I would say is um, the PC market was um, unusually strong in 2020. So as a market, uh, the market grew, you know, let's call it maybe around 13% or so. So we sold um, as a as market 300 million units for the first time since 2014. You know, that being said, um, AMD's, um, you know, PC business um, grew over 50%. So we gained share in 2020. And as we go into 2021, we expect to continue to gain share. And, you know, it really is, um, as you look across the market, there are a number of subsegments. So, you know, if you look at gaming notebooks or, uh, you know, commercial, which is very important uh, for the Fortune 1000 companies or, you know, high-end consumer, I think we gained um, a ton of market share. Uh, there are places, though, when you look at education, for example, there are not enough um, you know, notebooks for some of the education markets, and we're continuing to build and continuing to um, ensure that there's a you know good environment for that. So overall, I think PCs are exciting, and uh, you know we continue to believe that um, it will be a growth year for the market, um, and we believe AMD will grow um, ahead of the market in that uh, framework. Finally, uh, and with yet another uh, segment, which is gaming, uh, PS5, Xbox Series X, uh, things ramp quite quickly the fourth quarter and you seem to expect there's a good amount lot of momentum headed into this year lisa for that market as well don't you yeah that's absolutely right david i think we're you know really really pleased um with uh you know the launch with our partners uh both microsoft and sony i think the consoles are fantastic products and uh, people are, are raving about them uh, very strong demand um, in the uh, second half of 2020, that's continuing into 2021. And, uh, you know, we're very excited to be partnering with, um, you know, some of the most important products uh, for, this, uh, for this cycle. Lisa, we also appreciate uh, your updates and your joining us. Uh, we'll keep an eye on the stock as well. Thank you. Great. Thanks, David. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Lisa. Good to see you. Uh, the president's going to sign a number of executive actions on climate today. Elon Moy is going to walk us through some of them. Hey, Elon. Good morning, Carl. Well, these executive actions will have a major implication on the energy industry, especially Biden's order to indefinitely halt all new oil and gas leases on federal lands. Now, this is an extension of the 60-day moratorium that he signed into effect on his first day in office. In addition, Biden is also directing the Department of the Interior to review all existing leasing and permitting practices and look for ways to double production from offshore wind by 2030. In addition, his executive actions will elevate climate change to a national security priority. It also sets a goal of conserving roughly 30 percent of all federal land and water by 2030, and it creates a White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy led by a national climate advisor. Now, together, these actions amount to an unwinding of the Trump administration's stance on energy. But guys, the Biden administration is also framing this as a way for him to shape what the clean energy economy of the future will look like. Carl. 
Uh, it's been a busy week uh, for the president after some of the uh, Buy America news earlier in the week and, of course, the vaccine news yesterday. Uh, Elon, uh, we know you'll keep us honest on that. Thank you, Elon Moy, joining us this morning. David, it kind of reminds me of what B of A said uh, today. Uh, the Biden White House, uh, quote, is focused on reinvigorating the economy rather than bolstering asset returns. And as a result, leadership is going to look a lot different, they say, in 2021. They say buy discount over luxury, for example, because of the minimum wage push. Uh, by GDP-sensitive themes, and they say by the E and the S in ESG, uh, to Elon's point. Yeah, that is interesting. And, you know, and it, uh, of course, ESG, uh, we talked about it a good deal over the last uh, 12 months, and, uh, boy, are we going to be talking about it a great deal, uh, referencing again Larry Fink the other day, even more of a focus as we uh, hear that opening bell this morning. One thing they didn't mention, though, is just why don't you just buy stocks that have a huge short position, or, you know, have a business on the brink of bankruptcy, because that apparently seems to be what's really working, Carl. Um, as you were um, as we were getting ready for the opening bell. And by the way, there's the NYSE and the Nasdaq and the S&P, obviously, breadth this week. AMC did get back to a 300 percent pre-market gain, David. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you could imagine their businesses in great shape. After all, everybody's going to the movies. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I don't, you're getting frustrated by some of this. I, well, Carl, I mean, you know, we've never really seen anything quite like this. Again, the across-the-board nature of this core. I, I say coordinated, and I don't know. I don't know that you could argue they are, but uh, certainly they feel coordinated. And there does feel as though there's, you know, there's not just retail here. It's not just retail somehow taking revenge against the big bad hedge funds, uh, but it's working. I mean, GameStop, by the way, uh, is over $300. Uh, so... Uh, there it is, 302. It's up 100%. AMC, you can see costs express. Again, Bed Bath & Beyond really a laggard here, but had been uh, something of a focus, again, given the large short position. There are lists going around, and there is a, a great amount of enthusiasm amongst uh, groups of people who congregate in some of these uh, Reddit chat rooms to talk. I guess, Carl, is the best way to put it. But I continue to wonder what role, if any, the regulators will have. And I don't know... What you've been hearing, and you mentioned Massachusetts earlier, but it would seem as though, yeah. you know, this is not necessarily good for the capital markets long term. And regardless of cheerleading from well-known people such as Jamath or Elon Musk, th this is not good. Yeah, well, w William Galvin of Massachusetts did say, told Barron's yesterday that the options look systematically wrong. The, the, the mechanics of the options market, at least as it pertains to GameStop, didn't get more specific than that. Adina Friedman of NASDAQ, David, did uh, tell Joe this morning that they are looking or trying to match up uh, buying and selling activity with chatter on social media. I'm not sure exactly how that works or whether regulators are even interested in how they're doing that. Um, but yeah, it, it is unprecedented. And um, uh, as we said, I noticed Axios this morning, uh, David, pointed out that GameStop yesterday was searched on Google more than Biden or Tesla, which, by the way, does report tonight. <laughs> right. Uh, and Tesla actually is down. Uh, it is not necessarily a beneficiary of this course, even though it, it has had, through occasions had very large uh, short position. Of course, at an $822 billion market value. And by the way, its performance now for the, uh, for the year is right at, if not a little bit better than GM's, uh, and, and just trailing uh, Ford's, of course, given the enthusiasm overall for, for EV. But as you said, this is sort of unprecedented. It, it's reminiscent in some ways of certain things that we may have seen during other speculative phases 
where we saw parts of the market act very strangely. But it is, uh, in other ways, unprecedented. Uh, and we'll just keep watching. Now, at some point, there's no longer any stock to cover. Uh, and so the buying demand has to actually be true buying demand. I don't know where that price is. Many it's, would never have anticipated GameStop could have gotten to, a, to this price. And certainly, as we've said many times, there's no way to argue based on the fundamentals that, in, I mean, it, you can't even have the conversation. Uh, Carl, I can also add, you're going to see a number of hedge funds in serious trouble. Uh, anybody who is short a variety of names. This may change the approach to short selling overall. I mean, given the new risks that we're now fi finding for those who would conceivably short stocks uh, at, at hedge funds, you, you know, you're, you're going to obviously always want to keep it quiet. But to, to the extent that, that people are aware of large short positions, uh, this may change the approach. Maybe you simply won't see as much uh, a shorting. Carl, I did want to get to a few stocks this morning that have nothing to do with this crazy market phenomenon we're going to be talking a great deal about. I did speak to John Stevens, the CFO of uh, AT&T this morning. Uh, company reporting earnings, of course, conference call as well. Uh, I wanted to take a look at AT&T, a name that's widely held, up about 1.77% so far this year, but down this morning. Very strong yield. Listen, his, his view, of course, free cash flow at $8 billion uh, and customer accounts growing quickly. That's what they want people to focus on. They did add 800,000 uh, postpaid, and their churn was 0.76. So they are doing quite well there, adding true new customers. It's not just people who convert from pre to post, and they're added. It's actual new customers. 5G and broadband, both seeing significant growth at this point. Uh, they did write down the value of DirecTV. Not unexpected. That process continues. He had nothing to say about that. He had nothing to add about the C-band auction which we should be getting some details about perhaps in the next month or two. Of course, a key question for many investors out there is just how much was spent? We kind of know, but by whom? That's the question. Which companies really stepped up uh, uh, for the big uh, amounts of spectrum there, and what's that going to mean? But overall, what they want to point to is, hey, we produced strong cash flows, balance sheets in decent shape, they say, and they actually are giving us guidance of 1% revenue growth, none of which seems to be enough at this point to move the stock higher HBO, by the way, HBO, HBO Max added 7 million subs last year. That was a record for it. And, Carl, it's now at 41 million, although I don't think you can get Wonder Woman anymore as the movie on there anymore. I think it's 31 Days is, is up. Is that true? Uh, I, I, it slipped by me, but always leave them wanting more uh, as the streaming environment uh, continues to evolve. But, yeah, a lot, a lot to unpack on AT&T. By the way, um, worst day now for the Dow since the 4th of January, which was the first trading day of the year. That's true for the Dow, the S&P, and I think the NASDAQ uh, just joined the party. Starbucks is lower in uh, early trading uh, this morning as U.S. comps down five in the first quarter uh, following some tighter COVID restrictions. Joining us this morning, first on CNBC, we're always pleased to welcome Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. KJ, welcome back. Good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys this morning? <laughs> We're trying to hang in there. It's a pleasure to talk to you about the quarter. Down five is certainly better than uh, down nine prior. Is there a sense that it could have been even better if maybe uh, the January restrictions hadn't popped up again? Well, you know, certainly it's, a, it's another uh, quarter of sequential progress. And, you know, I'd say the overall recovery is unfolding as we had forecasted. You know, China posted a positive 5% comp in the quarter. Uh, the U.S. showed uh, sequential improvement going from minus 9 in the previous quarter to minus 5%. And certainly that could have been even better, uh, Carl, as you point out, given uh, the fact that we had this resurgence of, uh, 
of the spread of COVID late in the quarter. And, you know, we had to, we had to eliminate a lot of the limited seating, indoor seating in our stores. And so that had an impact. But, you know, we, we have this operationalized where we can, we can monitor and adapt store by store uh, to whatever's unfolding. And I think as we disclosed yesterday, you know, January in the U.S. Was, uh, is, is looking like it's coming in at a minus 2% comp. So, you know, this, this uh, recovery is, is not linear week by week. But quarter by quarter, you know, we're tracking uh, to the to the recovery that we had uh, forecasted, uh, you know, several months ago. Right. We've talked to you for a long time about traffic, and it's not it's not endemic just to, to Starbucks, but uh, quick service in general. How do you get uh, traffic back up? Transactions down 21, even though average ticket was way up. Um, is there a sense that that transactions are, are, are bottoming at these levels? Well, you know, what's happening right now, Carl, is, uh, is customers are looking for experiences that are safe, familiar, and convenient. And so when they come to Starbucks, you know, in many ways, they're, they're, they're placing group orders. They're buying multiple beverages, uh, multiple food items. And that's because, you know, they're buying, you know, either for their, their family or, or, you know, their work colleagues, you know, whatever. It's, it's driving ticket up and uh, transactions down. And as, uh, as we get through this pandemic and, you know, the vaccination uh, process starts to unfold, we're going to see that normalize a bit more. You know, transactions are going, to, are going to start to go back up once we get back in a more normal routine. You know, ticket will come down, but we still think ticket is going to have uh, some positive long-term, uh, you know, uh, upside as we look to the future. But right now, what we're seeing is, you know, customers continue to group order, and we've uh, increased throughput at drive-through and curbside and mobile order, and that's working. Yeah. You did point out uh, last night the, the year-on-year reduction in operating margin uh, due, attributable, attributable to COVID, but also you said growth in wages and benefits. Um, would a $15 federal minimum wage be, be truly painful for the company? Well, you know, look, we, we're on the record, uh, you know, a couple of years ago that we supported an increase in federal minimum wage. And, uh, you know, we started on a journey and investing. We continue to invest in our partners. In fact, just this, uh, this start of this fiscal year, we made an investment in wage in the U.S. that fundamentally, fundamentally takes uh, roughly a third of our retail hourly partners uh, to, to be at or above $15 an hour. And so, you know, this has been our plan over the next two to three years. You know, we think 100% of our, our uh, retail workforce, hourly workforce, our partners will be at or above $15 an hour. Uh, Kevin, it's David. Uh, Want to talk about China, as we often do, of course. You had a 5% comparable store sales growth there. A year ago is when you started to close uh, locations due to the virus. Uh, obviously, that's a very different situation now. You're even opening new stores. Are you expecting China to continue along this growth rate that you're now uh, back to sort of achieving? Well, you know, David, we, we highlighted yesterday that we, uh, the number of new store openings has accelerated. We now surpassed 4,800 stores in China. And, uh, you know, the net new store growth was 13% year on year. And that even accounted for a slowdown in store development, uh, you know, mid-year as we were dealing with, uh, with uh, COVID-19 in China. So our team in China continues to do a great job. We, we entered 13 new cities and, uh, in China, and the stores performing in those cities uh, are just doing phenomenal. So we're very pleased with that. You know, certainly uh, China has, has seen some uh, provinces have a recent outbreak of, of the virus. And, you know, in China, they, they, you know, basically when that happens, they shut down the city, they test everyone. 
uh, and they address it and then they reopen. So, you know, we'll see a little bit of that as, as that unfolds in this quarter. But, you know, we're very optimistic about, uh, you know, about our long-term future in China. And our team in China has done a phenomenal job navigating this virus. Uh, wanted to ask about an executive departure. Your shares may be down a bit because Roz Brewer is leaving. I can tell you for sure that Walgreens shares are up almost 10 percent because she's joining that company's CEO, something we had yet to say. Uh, have you replaced her? Uh, and, you know, just give me a sense there as to whether anybody should be concerned that uh, of that departure. Yeah, David. Well, first of all, I want to I want to congratulate Roz. You know, she's been a great partner to me for the last three years and contributed a lot to Starbucks. And and, uh, you know, we celebrate her stepping into the role of uh, CEO of, of Walgreens. And so, uh, you know, grateful to Roz and, and we celebrate. This was an aspiration she had and, and uh, we were part of helping her achieve that. You know, that said, uh, you know, what basically I basically eliminated uh, that layer or flattened the organization, if you will. Uh, and, you know, we've got Rossanne Williams, who runs our, our North American business. She'll be reporting directly to me. You know, she's a long term Starbucks partner over 16 years. Uh, Brady Brewer, our chief marketing officer, will, will report to me. So, you know, we've got we've got a deep bench of talent in the company, and uh, you know, and and we've got you know stability in, in in that talent, and we won't miss a beat. In fact, here here's an interesting statistic. Uh, there's there's me and, and nine others. There's ten of us on the leadership team, and if you add up the total number of years of of experience at Starbucks, it's 150 years of Starbucks experience on this leadership team. So I've got great confidence in these leaders, and uh, uh, we celebrate Roz, but we're going to continue to stay focused on, on our strategy and executing uh, against this business recovery as we've done. All right. Well, speaking of Ms. Brewer, on the conference yeah. call, she talked, uh, uh, KJ, about the future of your real estate and, and talked about the benefits of drive-through. Is that sort of where we're going to see you guys focused when it comes to expansion in the U.S. over the, over the course of the uh, next few years? Well, look, you know, David, the way I think about this right now, the name of the game is providing safe, familiar, convenient experiences for our customers. So we've dramatically improved the throughput in all of those channels, drive-through, mobile order, curbside. And that's what customers are looking for now. But, but as we look to this recovery and as the vaccination program uh, accelerates, we're going to see what we call the great human reconnection. You know, look, we've all been you know, working at home, schooling from home. And as vaccinations become uh, accelerated in the country, uh, we're going to see people want to connect. They're going to want to be a part of their community again. So that third place experience that we create in our stores, it was built for this moment. It was built to bring customers together to help them heal, help us uh, reconnect, and help us move forward past this pandemic. And so that is the future uh, of where we're going with, uh, with our store formats. So right now, we're balancing what we're doing around, around safe, familiar, convenient, but we're gearing up for this great human reconnection. Well, I think that's interesting because you know, so much of the coverage lately about QSR has been about the reinvention of the drive through to David's point, uh, the emphasis on walk-up service. But you think the third place uh, thesis will remain intact over the longer term? No question in my mind. Look, it's, it's all about the human experience, Carl. We are, as humans, we were meant to connect with one another. We want to be part of a community. It's how, you know, it's how, we, uh, it, it's how we share our successes. It's how we overcome our, our challenges and adversity. Humanity is about connecting with one another, and that's what the third place is about. I have no doubt in my mind. Kevin, it's always good to have you. Uh, you really help us understand uh, the quarter in full. Uh, thanks very much. See you soon. Thanks, guys. 
Kevin Johnson, Starbucks. David. Thanks, Carl. As we head to break, it is time for the bond report. Let's take a look at how treasuries are faring this morning. As you can see, the 10-year note yield clinging to uh, 1%. This, of course, ahead of today's Fed decision and Chairman Jerome Powell's news conference over in Europe, where it is a mixed picture. Yields rising in Germany and in France. But as you see, actually across the board. Let's finish with a look at the dollar index, which has been, well, week longer, but recently a bit stronger. Week longer. You know what I mean, right? You follow me. Got a lot more squawk in the streets straight ahead. Stay with me. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Worst day for stocks since October across the board, but you know what's working is 3M, uh, upgraded over at J.P. Morgan. They go to overweight. Uh, December 21 target, 205. Uh, they say uh, relative to its peers, uh, valuation is good. Uh, we'll see how long that holds, though, in a tape that is obviously tough. Squawk on the streets back in just a moment. All right, let's come back to the story that we've been watching closely in these markets, namely uh, we're calling it the Reddit trade, for lack of a better term, but uh, certainly the focus on huge short positions that are in certain stocks and the decision to then go long those stocks to force those who are short to cover, squeezing them ever higher. This continues this morning in a crazy way, Bob Pisani. I want to bring you in. But, you know, I wonder as well, as we watch an S&P now that's down 2%, and as I continue to hear from people that I'm speaking to of hedge funds that are under a great deal of pressure as a result of being short some of these names, and there are a lot of them now, and having to potentially sell their longs. I don't know to what extent, Bob, you think this is having an impact on the broader market, but it's not too hard to imagine that might not be the case. Yeah, uh, certainly hedge funds have positions. They're not just short stocks. They're long a book and they're short a book. And when you get the positions out of whack here, they have to maintain certain levels of longs and shorts and they have to adjust their portfolios and that can have ripple effects on the market. So, yes, I think it does. I think there's some broader things going on here that's not just that related. I think there's obviously some concerns. Uh, Earnings are good. If you look at Microsoft, it's not going to get any better than Microsoft. Their numbers were just simply fantastic across the board, yet it's up only 1% because it's moved up huge going into earnings. So we've got a problem here with stocks moving up in expectations of great earnings, and we're getting them, so it's hard to move the market forward. I think there's a little bit of that. 
um, as well. As for the, the short story, and there you see Microsoft uh, down here today. But remember, 117, what, a week ago in anticipation of earnings? It goes to 132 a few days ago, and now it's up there. So here's those heavily shorted stocks. And of course, as David mentioned, it's not just GameStop. We were talking all yesterday about all these names, including Tanger Factory Outlet and, and iRobot and companies uh, like that. I think here's the question. Uh, what's different from the 1990s chat rooms? We spent a lot of time, David and I, in the chat rooms in the 1990s watching that. And there are some things that are very different from the 1990s. The information flow is very different. The ease with which you get information and get access to it, including on your cell phone, is different. The zero commissions are certainly different and may be a factor. The overall gamification of trading is, is different. That you can trade stocks like you, you do sports betting, which also didn't exist to this extent in the 1990s. Um, you have to know that there's a difference. But then there's things that are not different, and I think that's very important to point out. The old-fashioned sense of greed, the, the whole herd behavior. There was a whole group of behavioral economics terms we all had to learn after the dot-com crash. We all got very familiar with concepts like uh, herd behavior, which is the idea that we're all just going to move together. Confirmation bias, that investors kind of believe uh, what they want to believe, what their, what their biases uh, want them to believe, and they just look for reasons to confirm that. The gambler's fallacies, that a series of wins are going to go on forever somehow, and you're never going to lose. And finally, loss aversion, something we all became familiar with, which is that the, the great weight of concern for losses, uh, the concern for the weight of losses is much greater than from market gains. And we'll see if loss aversion becomes an issue in this story. It could well be. I think, David, the question here is, is there something really different here? Well, yeah, it's kind of different. It's kind of different, Bob. No, I mean, in the sense of, you know, you referenced that period of time that we all remember quite well, and we've made certainly allusions to the late 90s. But I don't quite recall the focus on companies that had large short positions, certainly not larger cap companies that we're seeing now. I mean, you had a lot of small caps that moved. Typically, it was just on the buy side. Um, I'm not quite sure we've seen anything quite like this. And by the way, the sums of money here are fairly significant. I mean, we talk about retail, but there's some people stepping up for some large options purchases here who have to put up a decent amount of capital to do that. Not to mention, I mean, somebody buying the 200 calls yesterday on GameStop that I guess were listed and now has made a fortune on them. There are things here that are unique. Yes. The one-two punch of the ocean of liquidity provided by the Federal Reserve combined with that gamification of trading, combined with this strategy of buying out-of-the-money calls, has proven very effective. I'm talking about a broader philosophical issue, David. I'm talking about the idea, which is, if you want to believe that GameStop's going to be $200 six months from now, you have to basically believe that fundamental analysis doesn't really matter, that even technical analysis may not matter. Do you really believe that? So fundamental analysis based on the idea that there's an intrinsic value in stock. And of course, as of now, this doesn't matter at all. Now, we know that this can not matter for short periods of time. I think it's highly debatable about whether suddenly we have discovered a new analysis, not fundamental, not technical, not quantitative, uh, flow analysis, whatever you want to call it, Carl. Is there some new analysis that suddenly has come out of nowhere, that we have discovered some new principle, that the forces of gravity have been repealed upon us? I don't right. think so. I doubt that. Uh, I think it's wonderful yeah. that people are participating in the market that haven't before, David, but yeah. you know what I'm getting at. No, I do, but there's going to be a lot of hedge fund, uh, hedge fund uh, executives who are going to need traditional analysis, Carl, after this is all said and done. Bob, thank you. <laughs> uh, indeed. 
as we see some other names get swept up in this. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. We'll take a break here. Um, Dow down about 460, uh, just slightly off of the uh, session lows. We'll talk to Jamath Palhapatia, who's increasingly a player in this whole conversation. He's with the judge at 1230 today. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.